Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Sons of Sequoia podcast, broadcasting live from Wheat Ridge, Colorado, the home of the champions. Today we'll be discussing a foreign affairs article by Audrey Wong entitled, How to Not Win Allies and Influence Geopolitics, China's Self-Defeating Economic Statecraft. And this is our 69th episode, so to that I would just like to say, nice. Okay. How are you this morning? I'm doing fine. May 7th, a beautiful day in Colorado. Uh, and uh, I love talking about the foreign affairs articles. Because we'll talk to these people who have something to say. And we see, we listen to them. We listen to what they say. But then we try to understand what they mean. But then, hey, we'll question it. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we take a look, let me just pull up the article real quick. Okay. Oh, come on. Oh, I see. I see what I'm doing wrong. I did it. Okay. (laughs) Good. Yeah, we actually, uh, just like live television, this is a live podcast. This is a live YouTube. This is totally live. And David is doing all this stuff, and you brought it up. Good job, David. Yeah, I got it. Um, Audrey Wong is the Grand Strategy, Security, and Statecraft Postdoctoral Fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology Security Studies Program. Mm -hmm. So her scholarship bona fides are are there, you know. Um, She's a graduate of Princeton. And uh, and now she's working uh, with Harvard on probably grants from Harvard and uh, and MIT. Yeah, she's a postdoctoral fellow. Um, I think that if you're a postdoctoral fellow and you get published in the pages of Foreign Affairs, that's pretty good. Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, well, she probably has some really good things to say. So yes. this is probably a really good article. Now, uh, we were talking the other day about globalization, and I brought up the Great Mall of China, the not-so-great Mall of China, mm-hmm. just to say, yes, China's growing so rapidly, but some of that growth is inefficient. You know, so, some of the – and I think that in the U.S., we tend to think there's no way we can compete. They're growing so fast. They're going to overtake uh, us in terms of economic prestige, and that's probably true. I mean, just the size of their market – uh, the type of resources they have, the trade leverage that they're going to have in the future compared to us. There's more people, perhaps more resources. They may surpass us in wealth. That's that's fine. But they're not a monolith that's just a well-oiled machine. There's fits and starts to this for them as well. And this article goes into it. So a lot of their initiatives, they're plagued by inefficiency, corruption, and she points that out in this article. And I, th- I just found it fascinating. I'm sure the Chinese government doesn't like it when you say stuff like this. But she's saying this. So we're not saying, we've, well, you and I have been to China, and we'd like to point out we're just looking at this. We're not saying this if we ever want to go back to China. <laughs> we're just looking <laughs> at Audrey Wong's words. Okay. But, okay, I... What popped into my head since we're just talking here, right, is uh, this is a very common thing where people have a, a fast return on something, and that's what they want to see. 
And uh, I remember when you guys were kids and I read you Aesop's fables and the tortoise and the hare. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of uh, a lot of what people do today uh, and it's rampant. It's not that tortoise and the hare is just a story. Uh, it is a, a fact of human nature. Mm-hmm. They want something really fast and they do it and then they run out of gas or they go in the wrong direction or they make a mistake. But steady, slow and steady wins the race. Mm-hmm. And you can either do it fast and lose or you can just steady, steady and just keep going and keep going and keep going. So there's two different approaches. Uh, yeah. And short, short term success and failure or long term growth. And this is less about you know, the speed of growth, the not-so-great model of China. That was 15 years ago. That was sort of a speed of growth issue. A lot of this is when you have these huge, ambitious projects, the things that go wrong are exactly the things that you would expect to go wrong. And and she's pointing out they are going wrong. And now I'm sure the Chinese government doesn't like it being pointed out, but I'd like to remind the Chinese government, Audrey Wong is saying this, not me. So if I ever need to go back there, I'm just reading her words, you know. I'm... uh, maybe I'll weigh in with my own opinion, but but this is just what she has to say about the situation of China's economic statecraft, which I think is nuanced, it's aggressive, but it's not without its faults. Correct? Correct. So let's and as get... you say, where you stand is where you sit. Mm-hmm. And we've already said where Andre Wong sits. She's a scholar from... Harvard and the MIT, Massachusetts Institute right. of Technology. Right. So let's right. go. China. Okay. How not to win allies and influence geopolitics. China's self-defeating economic statecraft. China, it is often said, has mastered the art of economic statecraft. Observers routinely worry that by throwing around its ever-growing economic weight, the country is managing to buy goodwill and influence. During the COVID-19 pandemic, Beijing has exploited its dominance of manufacturing supply chains to win favor by donating masks and now vaccines to foreign countries. And it has long used unfair state subsidies to tilt the playing field in favor of Chinese companies. Beijing has also weaponized its expanding trade relations. China overtook the United States as the top global trader in 2013, and it is now the leading source of imports for about 35 countries and the top destination of exports for about 25 countries. The Chinese government has not hesitated to leverage access to its consumer market to pressure foreign governments and firms to obey its wishes. In 2019, for example, it canceled the visit of a trade delegation to Sweden after a Swedish literary association awarded a prize to a detained Chinese-born bookseller. The following year, China retaliated against Australia's calls for an independent inquiry into the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic by imposing tariffs on a range of Australian products. Many fear that such gambits are only a taste of what's to come, as China goes to greater lengths to use its economic influence to bully other countries. Much of the consternation focuses on the Belt and Road Initiative, a massive collection of Chinese-financed infrastructure projects, from railways to ports, that critics portray as a modern-day imperialist venture. Pointing to the BRI, U.S. officials have accused China of engaging in debt-trap diplomacy, whereby it purportedly saddles recipient countries with enormous loans and then extracts strategic concessions when they are unable to repay. 
Many of these same officials worry that at the same time that China is sharpening its economic tools, the United States has let its own grow dull, forgetting how to turn economic power into strategic gains. But a close look reveals that China's record is far less impressive than often thought. For one thing, its attempts at economic statecraft have often sparked resistance. And many of the 60-plus countries receiving BRI investment, even in the, those most eager for Chinese investment, officials have complained of shoddy construction, inflated costs, and environmental degradation. Beijing has been forced to go on the defensive with Chinese President Xi Jinping taking pains to emphasize the importance of high-quality and reasonably priced projects. Many countries have demanded reciprocal access to the Chinese market. Others have bowed out of Chinese initiatives altogether and are seeking financing elsewhere. China has managed to massively expand its presence beyond its borders, but so far it has failed to term and turn into long-term strategic influence. The Chinese economy exerts a strong gravitational pull, but as Beijing is discovering, that does not necessarily mean that other countries are altering their political orbits. Well, good introduction. Mm-hmm. Very good introduction, yeah. You can be strong today, but if you don't use that strength wisely, you can lose it. Yes, and throwing your weight around doesn't necessarily mean that you're always throwing it around as effectively as you can. Yeah, that's right. And throwing it around, it could be if it's positive, no one person is stronger than everybody mm -hmm. um, together. So Sweden awards a, an author that was exiled, a literary association. So it seems like a private, a private literary association in Sweden awards an Oscar, I mean, not an Oscar, uh, an award to a dissident writer. And Hong Kong boycotts, I mean, not Hong Kong, China boycotts. Um, I think that in the coming decades, China's going to have to decide which hills it's willing to die on. I'm sure that the fact that China boycotted Sweden, the meeting with Sweden, because of a literary award that was given to one of a, a political dissident brought more attention to that dissident and that award than anything they could have done. And that's sort of how it works. So I I do think their reactionary policies of, oh, we'll just deny you access to our market because of this, sometimes it backfires on them. And when you're that big, uh, all eyes are on you. Mm-hmm. And they're going to scrutinize what you do. And you don't have carte blanche to do whatever you want. Uh, because in some cases, it's like a target on your back if things start going south. Yeah. So You've got to be careful. you got, you got to use it wisely, just like you said. I mean, I think, you know, what I said at the beginning, prefacing it, saying this is, uh, what's her name? <laughs> Audrey. Audrey. This is Audrey's opinions, not ours. Um Maybe we should take Audrey's opinions and take them even further and then hope that China boycotts us and then sort of use that to piggyback on the prestige of the podcast. That's true. You know, broadcasting live from Wheat Ridge, Colorado, banned in China for being just a little <laughs> too honest. <laughs> yeah, to be literal and honest. Uh, 
Well, we'll should, see what they do. We'll see what they do with Audrey. Yeah, should be should yeah. I mean, that's the interesting thing is that they are so reactionary that as a scholar studying the foreign policy and the economic statecraft of China, when you publish an article like this that is um, negative, I mean, it's not saying that they're the worst people in the world. It's saying they make mistakes and these are all their mistakes. Do you do that with the understanding that you may never be able to get a visa to go to Beijing or Shanghai or Shenzhen or Hong Kong ever again? Well, after you said those things, do you want to? You yeah. go there and you may never come back. So the the point is uh, that actually that's another point. In America, in the United States, you can say things uh, and words do matter. And... Uh, that's what that's what the United States has, has stood for, and I hope it continues to stand that way, where we could, you can say whatever you want, but you're going to be challenged. And so I think uh, if you could speak up, uh, you have to come to the point where you've got to take the criticism. And I think that uh, we should teach our children to speak their mind and also take criticism and have friendly debate. And then you can agree to disagree, but you can't push down another person simply because they disagree with you. I think, to me, I think that is an extremely healthy uh, checks and balances moving forward with logic and also with opinion, not only in, in uh, international politics, but also domestic uh, politics and in uh, business and uh, education, uh, in the health industry, uh, all over. Uh, I think there has to be openness, there has to be dialogue, uh, and uh, there has to be questioning. Question everything, and uh, but be willing to listen and understand what the other person is saying. And it's just like we say here all the time, right, David? Yeah, I mean, I think that the lessons that you can draw from a foreign affairs article don't apply just to geopolitics. Exactly right. Logic is logic. So I think one thing, we're about to get into this in the next section, the next section is entitled, What China Wants. And that's one thing about a television show that I used to watch called Mad Men. Um, Don Draper's an advertising executive. He's the main character. People will come to him with their concerns, their complaints. They'll be complaining to him. And he always cuts through the bullshit because he's a no-nonsense sort of guy. And his question is always, well, what do you want? It's getting at what someone wants is important. Sort of trying to understand, um, they're complaining, but if you address their complaints, they're not going to get what they want, and they're going to keep being a pain in your ass. So you have to decide what they want, and then you can determine if you can help them get there. And I think that's true in all walks of life. And I think that determining what China wants, um, some of their ambitions... Um, the world might be able to help them get there. It's, and some of the things that they're doing are out of sync with the things that they actually want. So shall we continue reading the article? Yeah, again, that's a good point. Uh, that's a very good question. What do you want? Because I think what this article is getting ready to say is that if you want something... And then you go after it, you got to think about your methods. Mm -hmm. 
you might be undermining yourself to get what you want. Uh, think, think about what you want, where's it coming from, how you get it. And uh, sometimes the method of getting it undermines uh, the long-term ability to get it. So we go on? Yeah. What China wants. Over the past few decades, China's global economic footprint has grown enormously. In 1995, China accounted for just 3% of global trade. But by 2018, thanks to massive economic growth, it accounted for 12%, the largest share of any country. In 2020, in part due to the pandemic, China became the EU's largest trading partner, displacing the United States. Chinese foreign investment has expanded rapidly in the developing world too, with Chinese companies and banks plowing money into Southeast Asia, Africa, and Latin America. Beijing has also taken on active leadership role in global economic governance, its confidence boosted by having weathered the 2008 global financial crisis well. In 2014, China unveiled the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, a multilateral development bank with an initial cap capitalization of $100 billion that has since grown to include more than 100 countries. Many of them are traditional U.S. partners and allies that joined over Washington's objections. What China does not want, what does China want to do with all this newfound economic power? The opacity of China's political system leads many to ascribe its behavior to a centralized decision-making process pursuing a coherent grand strategy. But Chinese policies are in fact often the product of competition and compromise among a tangle of actors, local governments, high-level bureaucracies, state-owned enterprises, private firms, and more. Consider the BRI. What began as a vague and sprawling plan has taken on a life of its own, at times hijacked by opportunistic government officials and companies seeking to feather their own nests. Many of the constituent projects are motivated less by some grand strategy blueprint than by the preferences of individual actors. Another error is to assume that China's actions are driven by a desire to export its own autocratic political system and status uh, economic system. True, Xi has grown increasingly repressive at home and assertive abroad, but China is still preoccupied more with safeguarding its own interests than with trying to remake other countries in its own image. Even though China seeks to reshape the international system to reflect its priorities, that is a far cry from trying to overturn the order altogether. What really drives China's economic statecraft is not grand strategic designs or autocratic impulses, but something more practical and immediate, stability and survival. The Chinese Communist Party fundamentally object, fundamental objective, the Chinese Communist Party's fundamental objective is to preserve the legitimacy of its rule. China's economic statecraft then is often employed to put out immediate fires and protect the CCP's domestic and international image. China wants to stamp out criticism and reward those who support its policies. This is particularly true when it comes to issues involving national sovereignty and territorial integrity, such as Taiwan, Tibet, and East China and South China Seas. And domestic governance. 
such as China's treatment of uh, Uyghurs in Xinjiang and its handling of COVID-19 pandemic. Be Beijing approaches its efforts to convert economic prowess into geopolitical influence in a number of different ways. China has often leveraged the size of its domestic market to impose trade restrictions on countries it wishes to punish, but in targeted and symbolic ways that minimize damage to its own economy. The Chinese government imposed sanctions on Norwegian salmon exports after the dissident Liu Xiaobo was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize and it blocked Philippine banana exports after a flare-up in tensions in the South China Sea. In both cases, on the supposed grounds of food safety, it has also taken advantage of its size by encouraging boycotts, urging Chinese consumers, for example, not to patronize the South Korean department store chain in its attempt to dissuade a Seoul from deploying a U.S.-led missile defense system. Capitalizing on China's position as the top foreign investor and technology producer, the Chinese government and Chinese firms have played an active role in international standard-setting standard bodies and promoted the export of Chinese equipment, particularly of emerging technologies, some with national security implications such as 5G and artificial intelligence. But perhaps the most prominent feature of China's economic statecraft is its use of positive inducements. These incentives come in two forms, under the table, whereby Beijing buys off political leaders through illicit deals, and by the book, whereby it empowers foreign interest groups to lobby their governments for closer relations with China. And a lot of interesting things she said, a lot of logic in there. Yes. A lot of interesting things she says. Well, I think, I mean, yeah, I cheated and I read ahead um, last night, but... Of course, if you're throwing around billions of dollars, individual actors are going to subvert that and funnel money into their own, like feather their own nest, I believe is the term she used. But they're going to funnel money into themselves. I mean, that happens in America. That's going to happen in China. That, uh, that's just how business works, right? That's how people work. Yeah. Uh, and the people that aren't, you know, the human nature will uh, do that. Uh, so there will people who will be, do, there will be people who do that. It's, well, it's one of the things. If someone says, we have $100 billion, who wants to um, help us spend it? They're just looking for someone to raise their hand and say, I will. And that might not necessarily be the best person, but. It's, I think that in life, a lot of times, just sort of saying, I'll do it. You know, if there's money for this, I'll do it. And you're the first person to say that you'll do it. Or you have influence within the party or you have influence within the local region. I'm sure that they're greasing the palms of local politicians to look the other way when environmental standards are, um, you know, there's environmental degradation going on. And it all makes sense. But I'm sure that the environmental degradation makes the people unhappy because it hurts their air quality or water supply quality. So they're trying to push these things past the finish line. And the person that's in charge of the project will take home, you know, $10 billion. Uh, but the people that are left to live with it, they get crap in return. And there's going to be pushback against any further initiatives. Yeah, it's not sustainable. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I think one thing she said I think was very interesting was that uh, what really drives China's economic uh, statecraft is not grand strategy designs or auto 
autocratic impulses, but something more practically immediate, stability and survival. And stability and survival are not wrong in themselves, but it's how do you do it? Mm -hmm. uh, do you have stability and survival by a zero-sum game of pulling everybody down and pulling you up because everyone else goes down? That's not sustainable. Or do you help other people and move up? That is sustainable. But what's the balance uh, between those two approaches? And I think that's what she's saying is, is you know, their, their interests are there, but their, their methods may not be uh, conducive uh, to sustainable long-term uh, stability and survival. They're going to be challenged. And They're going to be challenged. If you hurt people, they will challenge you. I think also there's this dichotomy between a world where information is open and free and the Chinese bubble where there's a great firewall and people don't get access to every source of information that they want like we do here in the West. So if someone speaks out against the Chinese government from abroad, you punish them. The Chinese Central Party, like before it was, we're not going to let our people know about what's happening. We're not going to let them know that hundreds of students got massacred in Tiananmen Square in 1989. If you search that on a Chinese search engine, it'll say, did you mean something else? And it's like, no, that was a big thing that happened. Like there were pictures, there were tanks. There was the guy standing in front of the tank. It's a big thing. Hundreds of people got killed. Um, and it's whitewashed from their internet. Well, trying to say, okay, well, we're going to try to whitewash the world of any anti-Chinese sentiment. If someone speaks out, if someone gives the Nobel Prize to someone we don't like, we're going to stop buying their salmon. If the general manager of the Houston Rockets says he supports uh, the fight for democracy in Hong Kong, we're going to boycott the NBA. Um, and LeBron's going to be on our side. I, I always I always have to take LeBron to task for that. He's like, these guys, they're just talking about this stuff. They don't understand it. They should just keep their mouth shut. He's talking about the Houston Rockets guy saying, I stand for democracy. And, and I mean, LeBron, he's done a lot of work in his community, but he had a bad take on that specific issue, I believe, because what he was saying is, my money and the money of everyone I know is more important than the freedom of these people that live in the city. That's basically what he was saying. Um, this guy opens his mouth. I Maybe he was saying this guy should just leave his mouth closed um, and just think that privately. You can't say this stuff. You can't say that you support democracy if you live in America, um, if, if you support that democracy in Hong Kong, or else I'll lose well, money. You could ask LeBron Audrey Wong's question, what do you want? You know, do you want uh, to, <laughs> by saying that in America, the, you can't just think that people will believe you without really thinking about what you're saying in the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. So what do you want by what you're saying? Well, what you want is them to believe you. They're not going to believe you, you know. You want the China to support you? Yeah, they do, but the U.S. doesn't. Where Where do you sit? You're in the United States. You know, think it, think, think through things before you say them. Yeah, that's. And I mean, I, that's that's what LeBron was telling the Houston Rockets guy to do. You got to think through. Yeah, you can say you support democracy, but that hurts me, and that hurts 
everyone that I play with, every all of my coworkers get hurt. If we lose this China contract, the NBA will lose hundreds of millions of dollars. I'll personally lose millions of dollars. My friends will personally lose hundreds of thousands of dollars because you opened your mouth and said you support democracy. And it's like some things are more important than freedom, like me and my friends making money. That's basically was his take. And he's done a lot of good in his community. And I think that when you're where you stand depends on where you sit. I can say I support democracy in Hong Kong and not worry about there being any economic repercussions for me currently because I'm not doing business with China. But the NBA was. And this guy said, I mean, but it's it's kind of crazy where you have to sort of measure your words on an issue like freedom. Well, that that's what I was saying. Uh, I was saying, be careful what you say uh, and, and how it affects you. Because LeBron will say that. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, what repercussions will they have him on him? It may not be financial, short term, but what about long term? Well, I know that people in... will always people always remember that he said that mm-hmm. money is more important to him than his freedom. Yeah, than the freedom of people all over the globe. Well, what about his freedom? I think freedom, people in Hong Kong, freedom of your neighbor is is your freedom too yes i i think it's everybody's so even if he believed that the protesters in hong kong fighting for democracy were right he doesn't feel free to say that because money's more important to him than freedom that's what i'm saying what does he want (laughs) does he want people to say that about him Mm -hmm. money is more important than freedom to him at least in that one instance in that one instance, does he continue to be, does he continue, will he retract? Will he re- retract what he said? Probably not. Anyway, that's that's another issue. Yeah, that's. The point is, that's a good issue, though. It's, it's a, a good issue good because issue. it's like China is very much choosing these hills that they're willing to die on. We're willing to, yes, our people like the NBA. It's a $100 million industry here or whatever. But one person speaks out for democracy, that's a general manager of the Houston Rockets. So not like Adam Silver, the head of the NBA. He's a guy that works for one of the organizations that's underneath the umbrella of the organization of the 30 teams. And he's the number three guy in the organization. He's not the owner. He's the general manager. And he says he supports Hong Kong. And it's like, okay, well, let's boycott the whole league here in China. They're, I think they're going to run into an issue where Uh, Maybe that they can suppress sentiment at home, but where people are like, what? That was just one guy. We want to watch the basketball game. You know, the Chinese people will say that. I I feel like that's in America. You know, we asked people to wear masks and stay home and there were protests the next day. Um, You know, you couldn't take away people's basketball or football because someone said something bad about Donald Trump or something or Joe Biden, you know. If well, I, the, other, the other the other perspective, though, David, is that uh, before China, there was basketball. And if China tries to undermine it, yeah, they will short term. But the United States will come back without China and they will have basketball. They will have sport. They will have what they want to have with China or without China. Mm-hmm. Now, they might they might undermine it short term, but we are resilient. We will come back without them. So do they want to be part of the success or do they want to be separate from success? 
so I, I know that's the other thing. Uh, you, the, the, the bigger you are, more eyes are on you. And when you start hurting people, people don't people are going to stand by that, stand mm-hmm. by for that. You know, they might be able to do that to the students in Tin and Square, uh, but you're not going to do that to the world. Yeah. But they may say, like they've done it to Hollywood. Um, you know, if you notice the bad guys in movies are never Chinese anymore. They're always North Korean or, or some fictional country. Um, uh, there's a story of Red Corner starring Richard Gere. Um, I could pull it up. Have you heard this? I don't think so. Um, let me pull it up real quick. Uh, before we move on, Red Corner, 1997 mystery thriller. Um, let me kill our picture. This is a fascinating story. This is the first sort of wealthy American businessman Jack Moore, Richard Gears, on a trip to China, attempting to put together a satellite communications deal as part of a joint venture with the Chinese government. Um, before the deal could be finalized, Moore is framed for the murder of a powerful Chinese general's daughter, and the satellite contract is instead awarded to Moore's competitor. Uh, Moore's court-appointed lawyer initially does not believe his claims of innocence, but the pair gradually unearthed more. So it made China out to be... Um, you know, at the airport, Moore asked Shen to leave China with him, but she decides to stay, as the case has opened her eyes to the injustices rife throughout China. She does admit, however, that meeting Moore has changed her life. She now considers him a part of her family. They both share a heartfelt hug on the airport. Moore departs for America. That's the brief synopsis of Red Corner. But do you know what the upshot of Red Corner was? No. The Chinese Communist Party said Richard Gere is never allowed to appear in a movie that airs in one of our theaters ever again. And he has not. They made sure. And so now, a big blockbuster, if you were going to cast Richard Gere, you say, well, we need China for that box office money. If we put Richard Gere in it, they won't show the movie. So, uh, and and then they've been hesitant to say, let's do a movie about the corruption of the Chinese Communist Party. No one's done that in Hollywood. If you put $100 million behind a blockbuster, a thriller about the corruption of the Chinese government, your whole studio might be banned in China. And then it's like, have fun trying to compete with Paramount and Warner Brothers if you make a movie and you don't have access to 30% of the global market for the box office. I mean, so it is coercion by coercion by economic... It's economic coercion, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Um, so, shall we continue? Because I think that we're about to get into that. The subversive method it sounds like it plays right into what, what we're talking about. Okay. 
China often provides economic inducements in illicit and opaque ways that circumvent political processes and institutions. As Chinese companies have increasingly invested overseas, state-owned enterprises or private companies, sometimes with the tacit approval of Chinese officials, have offered bribes and kickbacks to elites in countries receiving investment or aid projects in order to grease the wheels of bureaucracy. At other times, Chinese companies have bypassed the process of competitive bidding and regulatory approval to secure a contract, often at inflated costs, generating extra profits for both Chinese actors and local elites. I call such inducements subversive carrots. In many ways, their use reflects China's domestic political economy, where businesses depend on official connections, corruption is widespread, and few regulations govern foreign investment and foreign aid. My research shows that this method works best in countries that also have little public accountability, where the flow of information is restricted and political leaders need not worry about public opinion and the rule of law. Cambodia stands as a case in point. The longtime prime minister, Hun Sen, and his family control the military, the police, and much of the economy. Media outlets are beholden to the government, and journalists, activists, and opposition politicians are routinely silenced through intimidation and violence. As a result, the death details of Chinese aid and investment projects in Cambodia are murky. But what information has come out suggests a government deeply corrupted by Chinese influence. The projects financed by China tend to enrich elites while evicting the poor and degrading the environment. In the southwestern province of Kokong, for example, a Chinese investment group is building a massive development complex that is to include a resort, a port, an airport, power plants, manufacturing zones, and roads and highways, all adding up to an estimated $3.8 billion. While Cambodian elites have used the project to line their own pockets, the construction has destroyed ecologically sensitive areas and forced residents from their homes. Beijing may stand to benefit. The resort seems excessively large for the number of tourists the area can attract, but the airport and port appear well-designed for Chinese military use. Such largesse has allowed China to buy Cambodian advocacy on its behalf, in particular regarding its aggressive maritime claims in the South China Sea. At a 2012 summit of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, Cambodia wielded its position as chair to block discussions of South China Sea disputes and, for the first time in ASEAN's history, the organization was unable to issue a joint statement. At one point, the Cambodian foreign minister cut off delegates who tried to raise the issue, and at another, he stormed out of the room when they proposed even a watered-down statement. Government officials I've interviewed in the region have described Cambodia's behavior at the summit as the result of a, quote, straight-up monetary deal, end quote, in which Beijing paid off the Cambodian government in exchange for its support. In the months before the meeting, senior Chinese leaders visited Phnom Penh, offering additional grants and loans for infrastructure and development projects worth hundreds of millions of dollars. The investment has paid off handsomely. Since 2012, ASEAN has become more divided and incoherent, allowing Beijing to consolidate its position, rhetorically and militarily, in the South China Sea. A similar dynamic is playing out in Eastern Europe. The increasingly illiberal governments of Hungary and Serbia have happily accepted handouts in exchange for promoting Chinese foreign policy positions. A high-speed railway running across the two countries, for example, remains shrouded in secrecy, even as costs have ballooned and doubts have arisen about its economic viability. 
Part of the project is being built by a Chinese state-owned enterprise previously blacklisted by the World Bank for irregularities, and another part by a corrupt business ally of the Hungarian prime minister. In return, Hungary and Serbia have behaved obsequiously toward China. Hungary has issued official statements echoing Beijing's position on the South China Sea and Serbia's president, in addition to kissing the Chinese flag in gratitude for receiving medical supplies early in the COVID-19 pandemic, has expressed support for China's repressive national security law in Hong Kong. In Europe, China has plucked the low-hanging fruit, such as public statements and vetoes within the EU, and no country in the region has radically altered its foreign policy orientation. Still, Beijing has managed to dampen international criticism and trigger embarrassing public divisions about issues on which European countries used to be united. Chinese subversion has not worked as well in countries with greater transparency and oversight. Take the Philippines during the presidency of Gloria Arroyo, who served from 2001 to 2010, a time when the country enjoyed a vibrant media sector and a competitive political system, despite high levels of corruption. Under Arroyo, China agreed to finance and build $1.6 billion worth of railway and telecommunications infrastructure. Many of the projects were awarded through vastly overpriced no-bid contracts. A planned commuter rail line called North Rail, for example, was shaping up to have dubious distinction of being the world's most expensive railway per mile. Costs for a national broadband network to be built by the Chinese state-owned company ZTE skyrocketed by $130 million to $329 million because of kickbacks to key political players, including the chair of the Philippines Electoral Commission and the president's husband. As if on cue, in 2005, the Philippines National Oil Company signed an undersea resource exploration agreement that legitimized China's maritime claims. Yet... All this malfeasance was exposed by the press, and a public backlash ensued. Over the course of 2007 and 2008, the Philippine Senate held 13 public hearings, culminating in a long and scathing report that took Philippine politicians and their Chinese companies to task for their corruption. Politicians, activists, and civil society groups organized anti-government rallies in Manila and other cities. In response, the government suspended and reviewed a range of Chinese-financed projects, and some of the implicated elites were charged and tried in court. It would be hard to characterize China's campaign in the Philippines as a success. In 2010, Benino Aquino III was elected president on an anti-corruption platform and proved to be even more skeptical of Beijing than his predecessor. Even though the current president, Rodrigo Duterte, has been more eager for Chinese investment, he is still partly constrained by legislators who have pushed for greater transparency and by government agencies that have implemented more stringent review procedures. At the end of the day, the country's policy on the issue of China cares most about the South China Sea, has remained fundamentally unchanged. The Philippines has stuck to its own territorial claims. Such fallout is common. In Australia, Beijing used Chinese business people as proxies to make a campaign contributions and fund academic institutes in an attempt to persuade politicians and other voices to support China's positions on the South China Sea and human rights. The backlash was swift. In 2017, a prominent politician who allegedly accepted Chinese money was seen as towing the Chinese line was forced to resign. In the following year, Australia's parliament tightened the country's laws on foreign political interference. 
In 2015, the president of Sri Lanka was voted out of office after greenlighting billions of dollars worth of unsustainable and corrupt Chinese infrastructure projects. And three years later, the same fate befell the president of the Maldives. Something similar happened in Malaysia in 2018. The incumbent prime minister, Najib Razak, was mired in corruption scandals over the mismanagement of Malaysia's state investment fund, some of which implicated Chinese-financed investments, in which the contract costs were inflated to cover the fund's debts. Voters dealt his par party a resounding defeat in elections that year, forcing him from office and marking the first opposition victory in Malaysia's 61 years as an independent country. His successor, Mahathir Mohamad, quickly suspended a number of projects, renegotiated plans for a major railway, and spoke out vocally against Beijing's actions on the South China Sea, unlike Najib, who has been sentenced to 12 years in prison. Time and again, China's subversive statecraft has run aground on the shoals of accountable political systems. That was wow. a long section. Long, yeah. but illuminating. It was, yeah. Yeah, she brought, she brought to light a lot of, a lot of facts. Mm -hmm. A lot of very interesting things. Yeah. So, I think you say this all the time when you talk about foreign affairs is... You don't, uh, we don't understand as Americans uh, how other cultures function in international business. That's a big thing. There's a cultural aspect to the way business is done. And I think in this last segment we saw, where has China had the most success? In illiberal countries with poor, that where, you know, autocrats control sources of information. Where have they stumbled? Even in corrupt countries, if there's uh, freedom of the press, they get called out for graft and corruption. So the country could be on the whole. That's pretty loud. What? The scraping. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You can hear that? Yeah, it's loud. Oh, wow. Um. I can't hear it at all. Oh, wow. The country Sorry. can... Um, just wanted to let you know. The country can... Uh, I forget. <laughs> I forget what my... I lost my train of thought. Um, Sorry. Uh, basically, uh, China does well in authoritarian systems where information oh. is controlled, but they do poorly even in authoritarian systems where information isn't controlled. So it doesn't have to be they do poorly in democracies, they do well in autocracies. They can do poorly in autocracies if there's a freedom of the press. So, our authoritarian governments, and that's fascinating to me. And I think the part of it is they're underestimating the cultural differences between the Philippines and China. Yep. Because uh, they're used to how their system works, and they can work very well in a system that's similar to theirs. Mm -hmm. That's right. Well, the same thing happens in the United States. Oh, yeah. We know how, we know how our, our system works, and uh, if another system isn't exactly like ours, we don't know how it works over there. Mm -hmm. And so we have to be very careful how we, how we move. And, uh, for example, a good example of that is a lot of the, the Middle East. Uh, we don't know they're, uh, we're not, our culture is not their culture. Mm -hmm. So we have to rethink 
how things are done over there. When do we do anything? And that's why we need locals. Well, I also think, um, you know, like let's say the Middle East, their primary export is light, sweet, crude oil. Well, there's light, sweet, crude oil in America. And there's light, sweet, crude oil in Russia. And there's light, sweet, crude oil in South America. And it's a global market. Uh, there's, there's oil in Nigeria. It's a global market. Uh, like almost every continent has oil. Um, the way that you'd structure your business with each of those regions, Latin America, North America, Russia, Middle East, Africa, I think will have to be slightly different just to sort of take cultural differences into account. The way the deals are structured, the way companies are structured, who gets paid, um, how do you handle the political systems? So you can't export an American model to Latin America. You can't export a Latin American model to the Middle East. You can't export a Middle Eastern model to Nigeria. And you can't export a Nigerian model to Russia. The, you know, the political system on the ground means the way those companies are going to work, even though they're all engaged in the same industry, will be different. Yep. It's true. So do you have any extra commentary about that last section? It was long. <laughs> no, I, I think I think she uh, uh, really just had a lot of facts uh, and uh, to support the statement that you just made. Uh, there are cultural differences and uh, and uh, what there's not one way of doing things mm -hmm. in all countries. And uh, you have to be really careful. And uh, the way. China does things uh, is closer to their system. It works well in their system, and and it'll work well in systems that are close to theirs, which is which is a good point. And people have known that, uh, known that quite well. I think when we were there, when we were there, we saw that too. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't even log on to Facebook when I was there. <laughs> they don't have Facebook in China. Um, now I don't have Facebook. Well, another thing I think that's very interesting is. They've had success in countries where the the press is intimidated and silenced, and they've had failures, even in authoritarian countries where they can buy the leaders, but there's a free press. And so, what is their calculation? Only do country only do business with countries that are authoritarian and don't have freedom of the press, or when you go to an authoritarian country diminish freedom of the press before you start giving them any real money. That's right. That that could be another strategy. Yeah. Which also brings up a point how, how strong people are. Mm -hmm. How strong the press, the press that engages people, how strong people are. How strong public opinion is. And that's not an unreasonable decision calculus though, right? The one thing that's holding no. us back is right. the freedom of the press. So... Before we give this country $10 billion, let's just annihilate their press. And then this will work. It's, I don't know, I find it fascinating. That's, I'm sure they've considered that, right? Well, the other thing about freedom of the press, uh, at least they go a little, a little bit of a stretch, uh, not too much, but a little bit, is that freedom of the press is just uh, people speaking out. Mm -hmm. People speaking out, speaking opinion, a different opinion, 
and it's just people talking and listening to each other and trying to understand what the people are saying and uh, creating an argument, uh, just the other side. And it's just pretty much what these podcasts are about. Yeah. It's, it's valuable. It's so important. It's extremely important. Because if you understand where you are relative to someone else, then you'll understand how, you, how to be successful. Mm-hmm. If you understand what people want and tell them what they want to hear. Hey, we had a president that uh, he hasn't been successful his whole life, but he just he understood that if you tell people what you, what you want to hear, he'll get to where you want to go. Yeah. Yeah, the, the bank... The bankrupt billionaire. <laughs> um, do you want to continue? Okay, out in the open. China sometimes adopts a more legitimate form of se- seduction. This method is rooted in a broader logic of economic interdependence. China seeks to cultivate foreign stakeholders that have an interest in good relations. Beijing promotes trade and investment across multiple sectors in the hope that the groups that benefit from economic exchange with China can be counted on to lobby their own governments to seek cooperative relations with the country. Convinced by these private sector elites of the importance of the Chinese economy, the logic goes, political leaders will work to minimize any disagreements with Beijing. In countries where elites are held accountable by the rule of law and public opinion, places less suited to elicit inducements This approach has worked well so far. In 2016, for example, a Chinese state-owned enterprise bought a majority stake in Greece's large port, Piraeus, and proceeded to modernize it. The Greek government, in turn, has become notably more reluctant to call out China. Around the time of the acquisition, Greek watered down an EU statement on Beijing's actions in the South China Sea. And a year later, it blocked the EU from issuing one about China's crackdown on dissidents. In Australia, a number of actors have advocated keeping the peace with Beijing. Prominent business people have criticized legislation seeking to combat foreign interference and have lobbied for the Australian government to support the BRI. Local officials have signed BRI deals and awarded contracts to the Chinese telecommunications grant, uh, Huawei. Australian universities dependent on Chinese students for tuition revenue, have canceled events that might offend Chinese sensitivities, have stood silent as lecturers, have been pressured by students into apologizing for deviating from Beijing's positions, and in one case, suspended a student activist known for criticizing the CCP. Compared with its subversive efforts, Beijing's attempts to cultivate the support of vested interests abroad may seem like a more powerful long-term approach to economic statecraft, since it empowers a chorus of voices pushing for closer alignment with China. Yet this strategy also faces its own challenges. For one thing, the political payoffs are more diffuse and take a long time to bear fruit, testing the patience of Chinese leaders who are preoccupied with forestalling public criticism and immediate challenges to their legitimacy, domestically and internationally. For another thing, cultivating stakeholders is getting harder. As the Chinese economy has moved up the value chain, Chinese companies have become more powerful players in high-tech value-added sectors. 
unfairly help competitors argue by state subsidies. As a result of this competition, foreign corporations have had less reason to push for close relations with, with Beijing. Indeed, this evolution is already well underway in the United States. In the 1990s, U.S. businesses lured by access to the Chinese market successfully lobbied President Bill Clinton to extend China's most favored nation status. Today, by contrast, they complain about discriminatory policies, intellectual property theft, and restrictions on market access in China and lobby for punitive measures. China's doubling down on a state capitalist model is likely to undermine efforts at cultivating foreign stakeholders. Moreover, Beijing's increasingly aggressive foreign policy threatens to overshadow the positive lure of economic engagement. Its ham-handed wolf warrior diplomacy, an aggressive style of foreign policy named after a pair of patriotic Chinese action movies, has worsened relations with many countries. Its growing tendency to, re to resort to economic coercion has further highlighted uh, the downsides of interdependence. When Beijing, in response to Australia's cause for an investigation at the source of the pandemic, slapped tariffs and trade bans on Australian coal, timber, wine, seafood, and other products, it ended up empowering those in Australia who favor a more hawkish China policy. In Taiwan, Beijing has enjoyed even less success, although it has tried to use burgeoning cross-strait economic relations to undercut pro-independent factions. Tai Taiwanese business people have largely refused to back the mainland's policies because of issues in Taiwan's inde independence is seen as an overriding security concern. Even legitimate seduction has its limits. So it's not just all underhand grease and palms, huge contracts, debt trap diplomacy. There is an element of finessing academicians, finessing local right. politicians, um, and not just, uh, you know, sort of like the universities, they depend on Chinese students to pay the tuition. And it's, it's fascinating to me. It's sort of like you're saying with the tortoise and the hare. The subtle, the subtle route will take longer, and there's no immediate benefits. So the harsh and subversive route seems like the better one because you can actually have deliverables. But it seems like That's the right. subtle one's more effective. That's right. That's right. Very interesting. Um, what else did you get out of that section? Uh, well, the contrast, just like you're saying, I think the contrast of different different uh, policies and procedures uh, on how, again, getting back to what do you want, uh, but then that's different than how do you get there. And so there's different ways of getting there. Mm -hmm. And so you have to know your arena, know the game, know the rules, uh, know how to get there by what you want. And uh, sometimes it's hard to go by rules that not, you're not used to. Yeah. And especially if the rules undermine uh, your thinking and your your what's valuable to you, and that is uh, your values at home. Yeah, and, and that, I, that's good. It's going to be hard for them to do. 
I don't want to bring this back to our former, our disgraced former president, but one thing that I saw during his presidency that sort of I felt was perhaps damaging to the United States is something that China does all the time. You become an unreliable partner. So we make these trade deals, we pull out of them, uh, we start renegotiating everything, and it's like, well, how long is this going to last until you get uh, shellacked by Joe Biden in the next election and you have to disgracefully move to a swamp in Florida? Like, why should we negotiate in good faith with you if you're going to turn on a dime? Well, the Chinese leadership does that as well. Oh, you want to look into the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic? We're going to stop buying your wine and timber. And and so Australia, even though that's a huge export market for them, they know China is an unreliable partner. And once you get labeled as an unreliable partner, people start to build safeguards into their system where they don't need you as much because they know that at any second you could turn on a dime. And that, that was, I guess, not to bring this, all roads don't lead back to our disgraced former president, but... That was one of the things that I felt most concerning was if we are duplicitous in our nature, if, if we don't provide a sort of constancy for our, our allies, for our trading partners, if, if we show that we're fickle, that will be how we're viewed. And people will start to design their world around not needing us. And I think that that may be true with China as well. If you can capriciously just sort of cut off 10 industries, it's like, well, we need to have a system that's resilient enough to absorb the hit when they do their arbitrary backlash, you know? If you want a, if you want a rule of law government with a free press, you can't put too much power in the hands of one person or one branch of government. It has to be distributed mm -hmm. and you can't have that much power in a single individual. Hey, I'll, I'll stand by that statement. Yeah. I was reading the article before this, which is because they're all about globalization. And he used a word that I'd never heard, despite I should have heard it before, but I haven't. Monopsony. <laughs> have you ever heard of this? Monopsony. Nope. I'm, I learned a lot of words in uh, foreign affairs. I've never heard. I had to look it up, and it's like, did he mean monopoly? Is that a monopoly? Is where one business sells all the products, right? Right, right. And control, control of a control of a market. Monopsony is a market situation in which there's only one buyer. Oh, so it's on the it's on the demand side. Yes, the a demand side monopoly. Monopoly is on the monopoly. Yeah, I mean, monopoly is on, on the, the sell side. Monopsony is on the buy side. Oh wow! Only one buyer, and so uh, that buyer can pretty much uh, that buyer can state his terms. Yes. So if you allow China to have a monopsony over some of your industries, they have those industries by the balls, and they can crash those industries as an issue of economic statecraft, right? That's a that's a good word, David. And that's a, that's a very good view. I like the graph there too. Uh, <laughs> monopoly and monopsony. Because I, I, I think in graphs and numbers too. So we'll take a look at the graph. There it is. Yeah, see. Monopsony and monopoly. Uh, very, that's a good word. Yeah. 
And I, I think that in globalization, uh, monopsonies are an issue. That's not. So if you want to remain strong, diversify your supply side, but also diversify your demand side. Yeah. Because when you have a monopoly or a monopsony, then you are uh, at risk of being controlled. Well, I think or being manipulated or being uh, undermined. Um, think about this. The U.S. government, especially the military, think about the United States military budget, what it is. How many companies are there out there where 100 percent of their revenue, their only buyer, it's a monopsony, is the U.S. military? Um, and so obviously you're not going to speak out against the U.S. military. They're your bread and butter. You know, they're your sole source of income. And sometimes that's just the way it is. Like if you and I started a company and we were supplying widgets to the U.S. military and they paid us each um, $5 million a year. <laughs> well, would we want to diversify our buyers? Or would we just hope that they keep buying widgets from us at that point? You know, it's a golden handcuffs, I suppose. Golden, yep, golden handcuffs. Shall we finish the article? Because we're already over an hour. Yeah, losing friends. Losing friends. For all the breathless talk of geopolitical gains from economic statecraft so far, Beijing has mostly been able to achieve transactional short-term objectives, say, public silence on China's human rights record from a legislator or a veto over a resolution about the South China Sea during an ASEAN meeting. Outside a small subset of countries with little public accountability, China's long-term strategic influence remains limited. Most of the countries China has targeted have not made major shifts in their geopolitical alignment. At best, they have offered rhetorical and symbolic commitments. This is a failure of execution. Beijing has often been tone deaf, leaving it particularly vulnerable to the vicissitudes of democratic politics and failing to recognize how its strategies might play out in different political contexts. China has provoked backlash instead of garnering support. Chinese investment have often become politicized, with out-of-power parties criticizing the incumbents who signed the deals for caving into Beijing. The frequent corruption scandals that such investments produce have provided even more fodder for critics. Indeed, China has to contend with other countries' messy domestic politics far more than it might prefer, whereas U.S. policymakers often view China's economic statecraft through the lens of grand strategy and great power competition, for many leaders in recipient countries, it is much more about local political jockeying. These leaders have played considerable roles in shaping China's efforts. Consider the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, a BRI flagship. It has run into its fair share of political and economic obstacles as Pakistani politicians pushed for the expansion of energy and infrastructure project and then bickered over their allocation. In Sri Lanka, the idea and impetus for the Chinese-financed Hambantata port, often touted as the classic case of debt trap diplomacy, in fact, came from Sri Lankan politicians who awarded the contract to a Chinese state-owned enterprise after being turned down by the United States and India. The story of Hambantata is not one of China securing a geopolitical prize. The port is neither economically viable nor geographically suited for naval use but one of Sri Lanka building a white elephant. 
Recipient countries are also getting better at shaping the terms of their deals with China. Fed up with constant scandals, many have pressured the Chinese government to pay greater attention to domestic regulations. In Malaysia, after an outcry over waste and fraud in a massive rail project that will connect ports on Malaysia's east and west coasts, China agreed to lower the price tag by a third, from $16 billion to $11 billion. And in 2018, Myanmar's government sought help from the U.S. State Department to successfully renegotiate the terms of a Chinese finance port construction project. Economic statecraft is never easy. Coercive measures such as sanctions often fail to convince the target, no matter whether they are imposed by Washington or Beijing. Although the lure of inducements may seem to hold more promise, they also come with risks. In China's case, failure has been more the rule than the exception. That's because the success of inducements depends greatly on political dynamics in the recipient countries. During the Cold War, for example, American aid to corrupt developing countries in Africa and Latin America was successful at propping up dictators, whereas in Europe, the Marshall Plan succeeded at strengthening U.S. influence in democratic countries. Above-board Japanese aid and investment have bolstered Tokyo's image in Southeast Asia, generally speaking, but made few political inroads in Cambodia, where China's subversive approach has flourished. Beijing may find that its subversive style works well in corrupt, authoritarian states, but it will likely continue to struggle in countries where accountability matters, many of which are also strategically important. That is not to say that Beijing's attempts at economic statecraft should be written off. With the BRI, China is learning from its missteps. It has announced that it will curb irrational BRI investments, crack down on Chinese investors' illegal activities abroad, and establish a new agency to coordinate foreign aid. At the BRI's International Forum in 2019, Chinese leaders went beyond their usual bland win-win rhetoric and for the first time emphasized mantras of quality infrastructure, zero corruption, and ample transparency. At the same summit, China's central bank and finance ministry also announced new financing criteria that would take into account recipient countries' existing debt loads. On the flip side, growing illiberalism globally may give China more opportunities to gain influence in subversive ways, particularly in countries teetering on the brink of authoritarianism. Carrots that buy off corrupt elites could not only help them maintain their hold on power, but also do long-term damage to political institutions. China could thus entrench authoritarianism, even if it is not actively trying to export autocracy. As a preventative measure, the United States and its partners can strengthen accountability strengthen accountability institutions in recipient countries and provide technical expertise to help them negotiate with China. But framing the issue as a U.S.-led club of democracies competing against China's authoritarian camp is almost certainly is almost certain to alienate many of those countries, which would prefer to avoid choosing between two rival powers. In the end, China's rapidly expanding overseas economic presence, particularly when accompanied by subversion and coercion, may exacerbate strategic fears across the globe. Chinese officials may still think that economic development naturally promotes goodwill and gratitude among recipients, but there is good reason to believe that they are wrong. China, it turns out, cannot count on automatically converting its growing economic clout into a new geopolitical reality. The end. Very good, Audrey. Very well written. Audrey Wong, very well written. Very, very good. Audrey Wong. Audrey, Wa Audrey Wong. And uh, a lot of, lot of very good points. A lot of good perspective. 
And uh, I wonder what China thinks of this. <laughs> um, well, I think the crazy thing about government is uh, there are like just one of these projects, whether it's Sri Lanka, Serbia, Hungary, uh, mm -hmm. wherever, Pakistan, there are hundreds of people on the ground working on technical issues every single day. And there may be some graft, there may be some corruption, there may be some inefficiencies. And I'm sure China would like to root those out. But like we said, that's, like you said, that's not business, that's just people. If people see, oh, you're going to th throw money at this, let's use it to line our pockets. And I think that a centrally planned economy, I mean, obviously China has market forces, but or a completely capitalistic economy, it doesn't matter. When people see the dollar signs, they're likely to take advantage. Do you know what I mean? Well, graft is only graft when you have a system defines an action as graft. In other words, if you do not define something as being illegal, then uh, whether it's legal or not, it's not illegal because you haven't defined it to be illegal. Mm -hmm. And the human nature will take advantage of the system. And it's kind of like, oh, the system allows this. Okay, I'm doing it. So they don't see that as as graft or or under the table. It says, well, that's how it's done. Yeah. And so I think, and that's why what Audrey was saying in, in countries where there is rule of law, where there is a press, where they say, wait a minute, they're doing this. Well, maybe in that country that was allowed and that's how it's done. Mm -hmm. But the people are saying, we don't want it that way. We want We want a different kind of law, a rule of law. We want a different kind of standards uh, to to move forward instead of uh, having all going into one pocket of some rich people. Uh, we want we want more of the people to have benefits. Uh, so it's 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 she brings up some very good points about rule of law and free press, but also you have to dig down deeper that sometimes it's not necessarily. Uh, how can I say this? It may not. They may. They may not be evil. They're just opportunist. Yeah, because they can do it. You know, they're they're not doing anything that. Sorry, I did that again. Uh, they're not doing anything that's. They're they're trying to hurt anybody. They're just trying to help themselves mm -hmm. because nothing is telling them they can't. Yeah. Um, so maybe maybe it's time to speak up for people to say, you shouldn't be doing that. Let's do it this way. Here's a better way of doing it. Uh, and also, it's a better way because short term you might get you may be rich and you can die wealthy, but then the long term, there's other values uh, of a broader nature that that's that's a better way to go. Yeah, um, I think you're right, and but it is human nature. So you're in the government, and. You say, oh, do you want to build this? Well, you need a permit for the land. And my nephew, he owns a consulting company that can interface between your construction company and the permitting agency. So go talk to my nephew. He's like, oh, yeah, my fee is, you know, $50,000. I'll get you this permit. And then he goes and, you know, the, 
And the thing is, he's selling a product, and the market for that, it, the price of something is what someone's willing to pay. So you can sort of inflate costs, you can sort of exploit, and at some point, is China the country that's being exploited? <laughs> they're trying to export, you know, their economics, they're trying to use economic statecraft, but obviously, they... Uh, they're running into to issues. Yeah, like uh, what you do to someone else, would it be okay if they did that to you? Mm -hmm. <laughs> if China exploits another country, is it okay with China if they try to do the the same exploitation to them? If not, then maybe maybe there's something wrong with it. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a better way of doing this. Uh, I think there's another another cardinal rule here, and that is, uh, in uh, in uh, in a society, in dealings with people, in countries, in dealings globally, uh, it, it, you're gonna you're gonna fare much better with a lot of allies than trying to do it all alone. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, uh, you might win short term, the long term, if you don't engender that support from a lot of other countries, then no matter how big or small they are, then in the long term, you're, you're going to be you're going to have trouble. Yeah. And I do think that despite the last four years, America does have a lot of allies in the European Union and Southeast Asia and the coercive nature of China, it seems more onerous than the neo classical neoliberal order, where we're all democracies, we all have relatively open economies, we're going to sort of try to establish principles of free trade um, and open societies, and a, a rising tide will raise all ships, as opposed to China saying, we have a huge mass of assets and a huge market to sell to, and a huge export market to give you cheap goods, but you have to play by our rules. And our rules are not your rules. I think that we, the, the way that the global system has been shaped in your no one can go it alone analogy is, I think Audrey Wong points this out, liberal democracies with open market economies and the free press are more likely to stick together, and China's more likely to find its block among authoritarian states with limited freedom and autocracy. And so I guess the question is, is this setting up a bipolar world or is there so much economic interconnectedness that we're just going to have to tiptoe around China's feelings to keep doing business with them? Or uh, can we... Uh look at the way we do business and uh, redo our business strategy to where we don't we're not reliant so much mitigate our risks of being reliant on either a monopoly or an ogolopoly or monopsony or ogolopsily <laughs> <laughs> ogolopsony i'm sure that's a word should we check it out i got i got a good do you see what i mean though you see i what do i, mean? I do um, 
because the the problem with with a monogamy or there it is, ogolopsily. Yeah, ogolopsony. Ogolopsony. Um, so, now that's nice in saying we need to focus, but sometimes but that, you don't you don't that, have a choice. Well, that may be what we're after, but the, that there again it gets back to what what Audrey said. That's fine, conceptually, in principle, but how do you get there? Yes. Well, how do you I, do that? I think of this is of course the the classic example. Let's say you're working. You're working out in Parachute, Colorado, and you live on a house that's made by Shell Oil. You work in the oil fields for Shell Oil, and it's remote. It's the 1950s, 1960s, and you buy all of your groceries and your homewares at a store that's run by Shell Oil, and you have a good job. And you say, well, I really need to avoid a monopsony or a monopoly or an ogolopsony or an ogolopoly. Like, maybe I should drive all the way to Grand Junction to go. Well, that's a that's an hour-long drive. It's easier just to get it at the company store. I, that's the way trade works a little bit. You know, Australia, to import stuff from the United States, to import stuff from other manufacturers, it might be way more expensive than importing it from China. There might be raw materials or work-in-progress goods that they need to for their economy to function, that there is an ogolopoly, and they have to ask themselves, do we want to generate those industries here at great cost to ourselves or continue to buy it for cheap from China? Um, there's a break-even analysis that takes place beyond the theory. You know what I mean? When you get down into nuts and bolts. Well, you, you mentioned Parachute, Colorado, on the Peons Creek Basin. Mm-hmm. Or uh, you could go to the government or the local government and say, you know, what safeguards do we have with if if Shell pulls out? And they did. Yeah. And then was it Shell? Was Shell no. parachute? Well, who was no. it? Uh, I think it was Exxon. All right. I want no. I want to find out now because that's that's our company town. When I think of a company town, because I'm from Colorado, I think of parachute. It was a company yeah. town, right? It was. It was. It was a company town. Uh, I the, thought it was. Well, Exxon came in. Exxon came in later. I think it was Exxon. History, history. Where? What the hell? <laughs> They're not going to tell you. Like what? What about the history? Am I wrong about this? Well, wasn't, wasn't Parachute a company town for an oil company? I think it was, and they changed the name when it when it collapsed. Find out, find out when it when it collapsed. Parachute company town, Colorado. It's like there's not much information on it. Huh. Maybe I'm wrong. I've been wrong before. I'll be wrong again. I might be wrong about this. Well, well, well.
I've been known to be wrong, right? <laughs> but let's not say parachute. Let's say any company town. They do kind of have you by the balls. They're your supplier of money, and they're your supplier of goods that you buy with that money. Yeah. We we'll have to look that up. Maybe the next maybe next time we're together, we'll have to mention that and clear it up. It may not be parachute. Uh, maybe another town that's near parachute, but there was one that that totally collapsed when the uh, oil company left. I do yeah. know. Yeah, I'm looking at a map now. Let me just see here. And. Uh, that's funny. We're down a rabbit hole now, David. We are, but I, it pisses me off that there's something about <laughs> Colorado that I don't know. We have to know. I thought it was Sh Shell, but it might have been Exxon. I don't remember. Well, Exxon was there when I was there, because I was there. Okay. Because I worked in that area, but uh, Exxon was there when I was there, but uh, it could have been Shell before. Maybe it wasn't Exxon. It was some before Exxon. Like Texaco or something? No, Texaco. Texaco was up in in uh, up uh, uh, Wyoming. I had to just shoot parachute Colorado Exxon. Well, they do have an office there. The modern web is so annoying. Oh no, I think it's just a filling station. <laughs> it's not an office, it's a filling station. <laughs> well, it is what it is. I say let's just agree. Let's just agree to disagree. Oh, about here it is. Yeah, lest we forget a short history of early Grand Valley, Colorado, originally called Parachute, Colorado. They changed the name. Mm-hmm. Oh wow. Uh the history is a project sponsored. I have to read this to make sure that it's the right thing to say. Yeah. Anyway, uh, this may be something different, but the point is, something like that did happen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we know that. We just can't. We just don't know the the details. Well, I I think of a company town. That's we're getting off, but um, China becomes the company store. Where you know your economic growth is dependent upon uh, Chinese, the Chinese market buying your exports, and then your survival is dependent upon importing Chinese goods, and it's like then they have you by the balls. It's a monopoly and it's a monopsony at that point. Yeah. But that's, I guess it's all off topic. Of course, we, we sort of let the podcast go a little bit off the rails, but should we have some concluding statements about China and the future of economic statecraft? I'll let you do that. <laughs> okay. I think what we've seen here is, this is a problem that I always have, and I'm glad that Audrey Wong has pointed this out in her article. When I see nations or corporations um, do things, I always attribute a level of organization, of control, and of intelligence that I think I overestimate it. And she's saying when we look at Chinese initiatives, the Belt and Road Initiative, their foreign direct investment in countries, we see it as an element of grand statecraft. 
But if you sort of get into the weeds, you realize that they're susceptible to the same levels of corruption and inefficiency as anyone else. The problems that they're experiencing are the problems that everyone ex experiences. They're not a monolithic, all-knowing, fully capable entity that's uh, projecting their power and doing it so efficiently that there's no way we can, can compete. They're taking steps out into the wild and they're getting bit by the mosquitoes. And that may embolden them to sort of get smarter and stronger, or they may just have a cabal of authoritarian and autocratic countries that will do their bidding, and they may find that their model is not exportable to countries with a durable press and uh, free and fair elections. So that's what I took out of the article, that don't overestimate anyone. Everyone's an idiot that makes mistakes. I mean, look at me. I can't even tell you what company was in parachute, and that's in my home state. <laughs> So that's the lesson I take. Everyone's an idiot, including China. <laughs> Let me take anything away. Oh wow, that's that's quite a that's quite a statement, David. Uh, I th I think to me uh, a little bit very similar to what you just said. That uh, you can you can craft policies and governments, but people are all the same. Mm -hmm. And you have to have safeguards, checks and balances, or else people will take advantage and do things that you can create something with a positive uh, intention, but people will take advantage and create negative results. So you have to always think about uh, the upside and downside of any decision you make. And that's personally, but also uh, with the government and also internationally. Mm -hmm. So hopefully, moving forward. Uh, actually, I want to thank Audrey Wong for this. This article is very good. Uh, a lot of good insight and a lot of good uh, uh, things to bring up, to talk about, listen about, think about, because I think it's extremely important to be, to talk and listen and and just get other people's ideas, understand what they're saying. Definitely. Actually, we, we, we could probably leave with that, right? Yeah, I think we can leave with that. We solved the world's problems. And when I said China was an idiot, I just said, I don't mean that. I mean, they're capable of making mistakes too. And everyone is. No one's perfect. And if you get down into the weeds, you'll see that everyone makes mistakes. And I think one reason why we give them so much credit, I should, should have just let you conclude the episode, is because it's working. But if it's working in spite of the mistakes... I think that it should inspire us to do better. Um, so don't take something as a threat. Take it as a call to action. Well, everybody can make mistakes, but I think uh, there's good in everybody, too. Mm -hmm. And uh, whatever China has done, they're in a position to do a lot of good. Yes. If they start thinking about it. And I, and, and one, one, one shout out to China, if they ever listen to us, is that... <laughs> You're powerful. You have power. Everybody has power. Every country has power, some more than others. Uh, but you can do harm and you can do you can do good. And the more good you do and the more people you do, you do good for and do good to, that good comes back to you. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, when you do something good for them, they'll do something good for you. And and it's not expecting them to do good. It's just that's just the way things work. Yeah. You help people, you support people, 
uh, and the more you do that for other countries, and not not to coerce them, but to help them go strong, they will remember that. Mm-hmm. And that that's why rule of law, a free press, and you look to the people. When you have the people on your side, you have a very strong government. You have a very strong society. So think think about think about that. Think about doing good for people where they are. Yeah. I think that's a fine place to leave it off. There's the statecraft might have faults and it may have strong points, but I think that doing good for people is what will motivate them. And even if what you want is preservation of your party and your political system, realize that other people don't care about that. So you're going to have to do something for them for them to get on board with your plan. Right? Right. That's right. Um, So would you like to close it? I'll play the outro music. Okay. Ready? Go. I'm playing it. Okay. We want to say keep on talking, but listen more than you talk and try to understand what the other person is saying. See you next time, everyone. Bye.